0: Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is episode one of the series covering the latest issue of Plow, Made Perfect, on ability and disability. I'm Peter Momsen, editor-in-chief of Plow.
1: And I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow Quarterly. This is the episode where we kick it all off. We'll be talking about Pete's lead editorial, and then we'll be welcoming Plow author Victoria Reynolds Farmer to talk about her piece, Mary's Song, covering disability and motherhood. So, Pete, this is... I. think one of your juiciest and best uh, editorials, I would say. Um, Good job. You got into a, there are like so many rabbit trails here that I am tempted to follow. Yeah, this was a real case (laughs) of
0: like um, overnight writing um, that (laughs) just uh, got really fun. But it was an issue that because of the story I told at the end of it about my late friend Duane, um, one that was pretty close to my heart and one I've been kind of thinking about for 25 years or so.
1: Dwayne's story actually was essentially my introduction to both the world of the Bruderhof and the world of Plough Quarterly, because um, Maureen, one of our our co-workers here, Dwayne was um, her brother. And she wrote a piece about his his life and death, uh, which was, I think, the first big piece that I edited for Plough.
0: Right. The Teacher Who Never Spoke, one of my favorite pieces that we've ever published. Uh, And Dwayne, to tell everyone who he was, um, was a a man with a profound disability, never spoke, never walked, never talked, uh, required 24-7 care, and yet had an enormous impact on many in my community and Maureen's family, um, and on dozens of young men, one of whom was myself, um, who had the privilege of caring for him.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I feel as though Dwayne's story is a kind of window into both the specific issues that we get into in this, in this issue um, of the magazine and also into what it means to be human beings in community and Christians um, who are seeking to live out our faith in the most practical possible ways. Um, Because Dwayne's story doesn't allow you to flinch um, at anything that has to do with what we're called to do as Christians and what we're called to do as human beings. Um, there's no way that you can look at Dwayne and see his life as a meritocratic success, and there's no way that you can look at Dwayne and see his life as anything other than deeply valued by
0: God. And no, that's exactly it. And and to, to me, you know, getting to know Dwayne, and uh, you know, just to be a little autobiographical here, I um, got to know Dwayne when I was 25 years old. He was 21. Uh, I had finished college. Uh, three, four years earlier and then eventually become a member of the Bruder Huff and then kind of fallen flat on my face in, in a bunch of ways and was looking for, uh, you know, an opportunity to kind of restart, you know, regroup, also f- find my faith again. And one of the pastors in our community suggested, hey, you know, um, Dwayne is 21. Uh, his brothers and sisters have recently grown up and, and left home and they could really use somebody uh, to be kind of like a an older brother and caregiver for Dwayne, which I then did um, for like five months, I think, and uh, just kind of uh, room next door to him and, you know, spent all day, every day with him, and it was one of the most transformative times of my life because, um, like many people, as I mentioned in the editorial, uh, I really had done all I could to avoid people with, you know, uh, profound disabilities before. And it was anything but sort of like something that I felt to be my calling or something that I was good at. Uh, and Dwayne really did school me because uh, I found very fast that uh, being a super good caregiver was not what mattered to him. I did my best and I got really good coaching from his doctor and a nursing team because um, I hadn't had any experience doing that kind of thing um some nursing for older people before but n- nothing like this um what he fundamentally wanted was a, a peer a-, a buddy a friend and um although he never obviously articulated that in words um o- over time we really did get to know each other and did get to be good friends and it, it totally blew o- exploded um a whole way of thinking that I'd been pretty deeply indoctrinated in by, uh, you know, um, upper crest college and sort of striving high school years uh, where I measured myself and other people in terms of various kinds of achievement and success. And he he kind of made me look at what it means to be human in a whole different way. um, And I think a much truer way. So whether you want to use sort of in secular terms, the language of human dignity or in, in Christian more, I would say, truer uh, terms that the image of God and every human being, you know, Duane is the person I largely have to credit for kind of opening my eyes to that. So I'm always really grateful to him and always uh, was really excited about the chance to to write about him.
1: It seems to me that these questions are, this is one of these um, issues that I feel like we need to keep two truths in our mind at once, and both are completely true, neither is partly true. And one is that health is good, and that getting, you know, being able to do things is good. Um, You know, living free from pain is good. These are all good things. And at the same time, um, there's also the fact that the God we worship became a human being who was someone who was, in Isaiah, one of the prophecies talks about him being so disfigured that we don't that we turn our faces away from him, um, and on the cross he was, and in his resurrected body he he retained those wounds. So those are two things that we need to completely have. Like neither neither of them are partly true; they're both completely true. And it seems to me that people like Dwayne. Um, people from whom we're tempted to turn our eyes away because they make us uncomfortable because they show us our own weakness because they make demands on us by their very existence um we see the image of christ in them in a very particular way in a very powerful way um i wonder like how in your life have you sort of wrestled through that that tension between those two truths
0: well i don't i certainly don't claim any special insights here but I start off the editorial, Ashley, with a bit of U.S. history, which I found both horrifying and fascinating. And I, I happened onto it um, through an article um, by Susan Mary uh, Schweik, who then also, i discovered, wrote a whole book on the ugly laws, this horrific um Spate of municipal ordinances in the U.S., uh, primarily in the Midwest and and the West Coast, but also um, they were proposed in in New York City, although they were never passed, which essentially banned, criminalized people with uh, visible disabilities uh, from appearing in public spaces. It's a way, an oddity of U.S. history, although these laws have their analogs in other cultures, um, but, for instance, the San Francisco was the first one to pass. it In 1867, um, it banned any person, I, I quote, who was diseased, maimed, mutilated, or deformed in any way so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object to expose himself to public view. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just mentioned Isaiah's words, which Christians interpret as referring to Jesus, about how he was despised and rejected, uh, man of sorrows, acquainted with g- grief. You know, we hit her ourselves from him, we esteemed him not. Um, There's something deeply Mm anti-human in the thinking that went behind these ugly laws, which were only, uh, the last one was only repealed in 1974, um, although they were spottily enforced. There's something also deeply anti-Christian in those ugly laws. And yet they correspond to something that, you know, is pretty uh, common, uh, human reaction. Um, and so that, that kind of got me thinking, what is it about, you know, the sight of people who have disabilities, who have impairments that makes people so uncomfortable that they would go to, uh, the extent of banning them from public space? And of course, there's this long history, you know, as disability justice advocates have have pointed out, um, going back, of course, to the ancient world, uh, where infants with disabilities were liable to be exposed, you know, a practice that actually was only fully ended, you know, when Christianity uh, became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, up till, you know, most infamously, uh, the Nazis' campaign, the Aktion Tief, Tate's FIA um, campaign of extermination against people with mental and physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them with the same sort of impulse that we need to clear away, we need to push aside, we need to put, get out of here either by killing or by marginalizing or by institutionalizing uh, people uh, who make us feel uncomfortable. Um, in the words of the ugly law, again, um, unsightly or disgusting object, right? There's this language aesthetic language there. And uh, So you know you were asking, well, how does that play in with, with our sort of natural desire to, for health, for strength, you know, uh, our wish for, of most parents, for their kids that they are um, gr- do grow up to flourish right um, in body and, and, and mind. I can't unravel that um but I do think we have to be able to to bear in mind and this is in, in Christian terms both the the Christ who suffered who was um deformed who was disfigured um and the Christ who rose again in glory I was recently um you know in Rome again and had a chance to Spend more time in the Sistine Chapel, which, of course, is almost a visual cliche because you you've seen all of it a million times before, and it is, uh, of course, always then quite something different to see it in in person. And um, you look at the Adam, right—that this perfect, you know, human male um, being called to life by God out of out of the earth. And you look at the last judgment where all the saints bear the signs of their disfigurement mm-hmm. uh, of their torture. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't lost them, mm-hmm. um, but they bear them in hand. So Bartholomew has his skin on, but he still has the skin that was taken from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he holds the knife uh, with a shoe was flayed in his hand. And Christ himself of course has the stigmata, the, mm-hmm. the wounds. And so, although I think it's a mystery, um, the gospel kind of promises both that, that that original Adam will be restored to a kind of perfection. And yet, and here I think of Duane, you know, in the world to come, in a way that we don't know, um, but which Michelangelo somehow intuited, um, our disabilities, our impairments, our wounds. Will continue to will be glorified with us, and uh, so maybe that's all we, all we're meant to know. Um, there is a there is, I think, in in today's culture, and I didn't get into this, you know, in writing. But there's there's also in the same way that there's a despisal of of disability and of impairment. There's also on on the other side a, almost a despisal of the old. The old values of of health and of um, being all you can be in, in the right sense, right, which is to to use your talents in, uh, and w- w- what's been given you um, to kind of be your full self as God may have had in mind for you. And I think um, as Christians, for sure, we shouldn't set those two things against each other.
1: Yeah. The other thing that I feel like is a tension here that, again, this particular issue uh, I think shoves right in our face and should be attention is, you know, we're communitarians here. We talk a lot about the bad of individualism. And we talk a lot about how, you know, we as as persons really kind of only become ourselves in, um, you know, as as we're caught up into the life of a community. And that's true. Like, isolation is something that... Um, is grinding and does prevent us in some way from becoming ourselves. And at the same time, there's two things to say. One of them is that um, although individualism is bad, the individual human person is still the site of the image of God. And so we can't, you know, the the phrase that's used in these um, ugly laws is public hygiene. And obviously the idea of the Nazis was that, you know, you have to cut out some people from the body politic because they are like a cancer the body politic is the real locus of value mm-hmm. and individual people don't have value of their own. They, they might be, you know, pure sources of sickness and the, and the right thing to do is to cut them out. And Christianity has no truck with that whatsoever, even communitarian Christianity. And I think that like looking straight at that tension is something um, that I think helps us kind of dig deeper into the mystery of who we are as persons, and what it means to be the body of Christ. Um, Jesus doesn't let us think of ourselves as individuals in the contemporary sense, and he doesn't let us you know, think of ourselves as disposable. Um, neither of those is acceptable.
0: So I, it all comes down to this idea of the image of God and the way that profoundly unsettles a whole bunch of categories that people sort of on both sides, the right and left sides Mm -hmm. of the way these issues get played out politically Mm -hmm. um, are all too comfortable with, right? Mm -hmm. And if being made in the image of God is what it means to be human, Mm -hmm. you don't get to cut any human being Mm -hmm. out of it. You don't get to rank who's more human Mm -hmm. than other humans. Um, And you also don't get to make... um, gradations on whose life is worth living and whose life isn't worth living. And yet, you know, if you look around us right now, and this is one of the things that prompted us to do this issue, Susanna, um, there's so many phenomena where exactly that's what's what's being done. Um, two examples, and they're kind of culture worry, but they're really happening, and they they need to be talked about, um, are disability-selective-abortion uh the fact that, for instance, uh, a few years ago, a country like Iceland could proudly proclaim that it was free of Down syndrome. Um, In other words, that they had so successfully rolled out a prenatal screening program and there was such wide societal acceptance of abortion uh, for children with Down syndrome that you effectively have eliminated all children with Down syndrome before they are born, right? Mm -hmm. And this was sort of celebrated in some circles in um this weird this weird way as if it was sort of albert schweitzer having conquered a disease rather than you know the the very successful elimination of a whole class of people Um, in a way that's at war with all our society's equally fervent professions of of disability rights Mm -hmm. right Um, Enshrined in the 2007 United Nations Convention in uh, in the UK, there's a very strong uh, provisions in the Equality Act that even makes, you know, um, verbal uh, harassment of those with disabilities a hate crime. Uh, The the U.S., of course, has the ADA, Americans with Disability Act. So you have that on one hand and on the other hand, just deeds that uh, patterns of action And Iceland, of course, is only the most extreme case. Um, that, f- that are completely non-reconcilable with yeah. that. Um, then the discussion around assisted dying and euthanasia. Uh, Peter Singer is this bait noir, the Princeton utilitarian philosopher, uh, who has argued, for instance, that infants with se- severe disabilities should be euthanized or their parents should be able to euthanize them you know, was an outlier when he made first made that argument back in 1979 um, in his book. And now that's the law of the land in in Netherlands and in Belgium. Um, and there's people pushing that stuff here. So those are real rankings of human beings whose lives are worth living and not lives worth being and just, you know, to... To state the obvious here if parents are making this decision for their infant this is, the autonomy argument doesn't even enter into it this is a violent action being taken without the consent of the person whose life is being ended um so how do we reconcile this there it, you know th- there's these glaring contradictions um that that uh, really need to be looked at um and that's i think where the christian teaching of the image of god or if you want to take it secular analog that the teaching of the inviolability of human dignity um you know that's something that we should all be talking about and thinking about yeah. a lot more so it's not just about this niche group of people who have disabilities or have Disabilities in their families or disability advocates, as some might think. The more I got into this issue, and I know you and I talked about it as we put it together, the more I realized this is just fundamentally about what it means being human, a human beings yeah. with bodies, with abilities and disabilities, because all of us have yeah. those to various degrees.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the other aspect of this is that the more you – there are so many parts of this that are just it does not allow you to flinch away from the most interesting questions. And when you first brought up the possibility of doing this issue, I kind of thought like, "Well, that's kind of niche." Like, you know, this, yeah, I guess like the Bruderhof have this rifted equipment sort of um, business, which is you know makes um, gate trainers and other kinds of equipment for kids to help them with physical disabilities to help them participate more fully in, in you know their friend group and life. Um, So it's something that like, yeah, I guess I can see why the Bruderhof cares about this. But still, like a whole issue on disability. And the more we got into this, the more I realized, A, the idea that the disabled are this small fraction of the human race is uh, completely bizarre. And one of the things that, um, you know, being around the Bruderhof makes you realize, I remember thinking about this over our um, writer's weekend, is that the the fraction of the human race that is like between the ages of 18 and 65 and able bodied like fully able bodied is like that's not you know what that's like maybe a third of people half of people like it's there's most of us at what everyone at one point in our lives
0: is going to be on either side yeah. of that
1: and um and so the idea that like this is a niche thing is bizarre and it's also um, not niche because it just gets right to the, the central questions of what it means to be a human being, and it it totally strips away any possibility of I think even I think that the the secular dignitarian account doesn't really begin to account for what we you know instinctively know through through our consciences and what we can sort of reason out as we start to think about this stuff more carefully. For example, um, the idea that you know, you know, our our dignity lies in our agency and our ability to, our ability to make choices, and therefore, um, um, assisted suicide. If you're choosing to do it, is something that you ought to be able to choose to do. Um, runs right up against the idea that, like, okay, if you're doing that, there's nothing that there's no way that you doing that does not have effects on. Um, other people who are in your same physical situation. So, say you're, you know, you have some condition which you feel to be worthy of a death sentence on yourself, and you choose to, um, you know, commit suicide to, to do to do assisted suicide. You are then making, requiring that everyone else who has that same condition make a case for their own life. Um, they they're now no longer they now no longer have that kind of claim of i'm a human being um i'm i may not be in perfect health but i have there's you're not allowed to ask me to end my life they now have to make a case for themselves um you know obviously there are parallels in uh prenatal testing like when you and wilma were having your first child
0: right so this was back you know uh when we were having a first child we were living in germany and you know we just had uh our meeting with our midwife and we were partway through the pregnancy and she said, you know, it's time for the down syndrome test. And, uh, you know, we were nervous young parents. We hadn't really thought through pregnancy or, uh, down syndrome or prenatal testing at all. And, and, uh, so we kind of asked her quite, quite foolishly really. Okay. So what, what if the test comes back positive? Um, and, uh, it was just one of those moments where, um, you know, the truth of the matter kind of hits you. And particularly at a time when, you know, you're so excited for this first baby, Mm whose first stirrings you're already feeling. Um, The midwife, uh, her eyes teared up, and it turned out she's a devout Catholic, although we hadn't known that. And she just kind of explained the obvious that if there was a positive Down syndrome test, um, there's really only one medical procedure that would um, deal with it, uh, which would be termination and uh we then had to sign a waiver that we didn't want the test and it's a perfect example of this kind of nudging Mm -hmm. right so a lot of this stuff is framed in the language of autonomy but but if you look at it um for both the assisted dying and for uh prenatal screening and abortion of those with chromosomal aberrations or other disabilities uh there's big studies out there by the public health bodies, um, definitely for the prenatal t- testing, but I also found some stuff pointing that direction for the assisted dying, where you know th- these big public health systems realize that there's big savings to be made if you can nudge parents um, toward making decisions for death. Uh, and uh, that is why, um, that is what justifies you know, certainly in socialized systems, um, the cost of the testing itself. Um, and that is why presumably we had to sign this waiver, um, because the German health system really wanted us to know and to decide that we were the kind of couple who either wanted a Down syndrome baby, if she would have turned out to be that, or wanted to i guess have made the decision not to have a test Mm -hmm. and so having a down syndrome child as as many have pointed out stopped being a gift something that a baby that arrived for you and started being a choice um i you you affirmatively have to want to be the kind of parent who has a down syndrome kid um, which is an entirely different and of course one that we certainly as new parents a a kind of decision i would never want to have to make and we're and no new parent is is actually prepared to make that decision you have no idea what you're talking about
1: and you know if you're a parent in a society like iceland where um this is so uncommon you know that if you walk around with a kid with your child with down syndrome everyone in that society is going to be looking at you and thinking <laughs> why did like what's wrong with these people were they irresponsible did they not you know did they not know like how sort of how dare you Bring this child into our society, where now you know it, it's it's basically you're you feel as though you're having to justify the existence of your child. And
0: at a minimum, it would be be awkward, right? Now there's the, the one to two children per average year that apparently are born in in Iceland with Down syndrome are actually a result of false false um, negatives on the test results. Uh, it seems, but. That is absolutely the case. Everything becomes a choice, and to provide love and equal dignity, equal recognition to children and adults with disability becomes a choice that society makes rather than something they're owed uh, by virtue of who they are.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, this obviously impacts the way that we think about ourselves as well, because if it is not the case that our lives are gifts – and that we don't have the right to kill ourselves any more than we have the right to kill someone else, if that's not the case, then every day that we choose not to commit suicide, we better have a good reason for that. There's a kind of perpetual um, requirement of having a utilitarianly good experience of your life in order to justify not killing yourself in this kind of psychological mode. And it doesn't even, you know, it's not a question of, depression. It's not a question of, like, feeling suicidal. It's a question of, like, philosophically, suicide is almost the default under under these kind of um, social and psychological conditions. And if you're not going to do that, if you're going to choose every day to not kill yourself, it better be because you're having positive affective experiences. It better be because you're, like, being all that you can be. And so there's this perpetual um, need for like, need to run away from negative experience, um, need to deny pain, need to um, sort of prove the, the worthwhileness of your life at every point in order to kind of make the case to yourself and to the, the rest of society that, you know, you're not one of the ones who, where today is your day to, like, go under the gun. Um, and this seems to me to be, like, the most profound locus of dechristianization Um, Right now, like the way that we think about assisted dying um, seems to me to be like right now, it's still thought to be at least, you know, by most people, especially by most people who are kind of boomer generation. It's still thought to be not normal to just off yourself at the end of your life in a way that, you know, you choose and probably has some nice music playing. Um, you're still sort of assumed. It's sort. It's sort of assumed that it's okay to just like, when it's your time to go, you'll die. That's all right. Um, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case for future generations. Like, I think that like the idea of natural death might end up being one of these like niche hippie things.
0: Yeah, sort of like almost like uh, anti-vaxxers. Yeah, kind
1: of it's position. like crunchy granola. Oh, you're just gonna like let yourself die. Like you're you're. You're going to, like, just let it happen?
0: Right. <laughs> like, how, how gross is that? Yeah. Right? Well, and, and it comes to, down, so much of it, to these kind of aesthetic mm-hmm. arguments, right? Um, and you see that, for instance, uh, there was recently uh, some media around these um, Sarco um, capsules that some horrific company and uh, n- Dutch company um, – has built sort of 3D printed um, sarcophaguses that you can put yourself in and and extinguish your life um, basically by appointment and it's legal in Switzerland um, to use these things. Um, And the goal of the CEO of the company, the founder of the company that makes these um, is essentially to allow people without going through the medical system at all, without you know, seeing a psychiatrist or even having to ask for uh, the the drugs that are, are currently usual um, to just sort of make an appointment to, to exit. Have and it
1: be fully their own decision, fully autonomously their own decision.
0: But also a very easy decision, a, a decision that you could imagine somebody building an Uber-like app to arrange, right? And you can imagine funeral services... Uh, You know, teaming up with it, and for there being a seamless experience that you could just log and have the whole thing, you know, delivered to your house, and you could pick your Spotify playlist, and and this is the sort of sense you get from uh, the interview with the guy. This is this is kind of the way of death that is being proposed to us, Um, but as you point out, it's also a way of life that's being proposed to us, one in which um, anything that either doesn't, you know, help me in terms of careerist uh, way or in terms of an Instagram-friendly lifestyle, um, somehow makes my life not worth living mm-hmm. and radically devalues all human beings uh, in the process. And so that's what, I you know, really got me going with this Because you couldn't imagine anything that's more intention with the fundamental idea um, that Jesus Christ became a human being, took on human flesh, uh, that God chose to become a a man, uh, to become vulnerable. And if you think of the great mysteries of the Christian faith that we recite in the Creed... Mm -hmm. You know this whole way of thinking. You can't imagine a more fundamental attack yeah. on them. Yeah. So it's not just a matter of sort of these culture war issues of abortion and euthanasia, but also a whole—it's a catechesis and a whole yeah. absolutely false anti-human way of approaching. Yeah. The, the whole rest of your life.
1: The existence of that company uh teaches people something false about being human, about what it means to be human. I mean, I think it's sound- on. From what he said, um, the owner of this company, his ideal was that it wouldn't—you wouldn't even need to interact with a psychiatrist at all. You would fill out a form on a website, and an artificial intelligence would evaluate whether or not you were of sound mind enough to make the decision to off yourself. So not only there's something there's something thoroughly desacralized about your own perception of yourself, and that's combined in a kind of a sort of inevitable way with a complete isolation. And what Christianity offers in the face of that is um, a sense of each of our lives as something we're given in trust. Um, We didn't make ourselves, we couldn't have earned ourselves. Uh, We kind of hold ourselves as, um, we hold account, we hold ourselves as people who will have to give an account of what we've done with ourselves to God. Because ultimately we're not our own and we're his. And because we're his, we're a lot stranger and a lot more mysterious and fundamentally aimed at holiness um, in a way that just is not compatible at all with the idea, with the sort of like widget-like idea of humanity that, that those Sarco, you know, death pods implies.
0: How do you like my Socrates quote? Have you ever run into that before? I
1: did not, but I also I liked your sort of like uh, I don't know Jim Bro reference as well. So the Socrates quote was: um, "No one has a right to be an amateur in physical training. It is a shame for a man to grow old without seeing the strength and beauty of which his body is capable."
0: So I, as you led me back, I've, I've seen this quote in in gyms, and obviously it's sort of like you know, in, inspiring you to your ultimate bodybuilding self to some degree. Um, and so I, I jump back, and it actually is from Xenophon, um, this great dialogue I had never read, actually, uh, with Socrates, where it's a bit of a different Socrates than Plato's Socrates, and he's just chewing out this young man um, for just allowing himself to become flabby and and uh, saying, you know, you uh, of course, Socrates' reasons start out in the dialogue, you know, with the duty of this young man to be such a person as would be helpful in the common defense of the, the, the city-state. Um, but then he does get down to also just, hey, um, a, as a human being, you owe it to yourself to be your best self. Uh-huh. Now, like, you can almost roll your eyes uh-huh. um, at sort of meritocratic Socrates, sort of uh-huh. sounding like, some type of life coach. Jordan Peterson. Right?
1: <laughs> oh, come on.
0: And yet, in the context of, of the dialogue, is something that you can absolutely affirm, right? Th- this is actually true, you know, and uh, in raising my kids, I absolutely want them to push themselves, uh, to do all the things they can do. Um, and so I don't know, like, I don't know if we're going to, reach the grand synthesis here but there there is this way and and this is what i was thinking about and trying to think through in terms of writing about duane right Uh, there's a way that those two things aren't actually in in conflict
1: i'm seeing that i did not realize that until you
0: my grandfather used to always tell this story about my great grandfather edward arnold the guy who founded the community and he was a huge fan of of uh uh, essay by Fishta on the destiny of man. In fact, uh, he read this entire essay to one of his sons on the, the son's 11, 11 year old birthday as an inspiration to him. Um, and it's a sort of, you know, this romantic, um, call to realize your f- full human potential. Um, and I think that's, that, that stuff is, great, and I think there's a lot of modern culture, of of today's culture, actually, that wars against it, that kind of pushes people to a kind of meritocratic, lukewarm, over-easy self-acceptance, right? Um, That can sound like very tolerant, that can sound accepting, but actually, in its own way, devalues all the potential Mm -hmm. um, that God has put into humanity, right? Um, And yet, Yeah. That can't slip into a valuing of people based on, you know, how far towards Socrates' ideal...
1: How swole they are. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you you got me to reread that quote, as I was reading it, I was seeing how it was a fusion. Because what Socrates says there, what Xenophon Socrates says there, is that we don't have the right to neglect ourselves. We don't have the right, just as much as we don't have the right to kill ourselves... And take ourselves, you know, that's killing yourself is going MIA from the defense of Athens, you know. Um, At the same time, we also don't have the right to neglect our health. Like, And those are things that um, it's actually, it actually ends up revaluing the human being because, again, we're saying, like, it's not up to you. Whether or not you, um, you know, whether or not you stay alive is not up to you. Whether or not you seek your own actual real good, your actual eudaimonia, um, that's not up to you. You've got to do that because seeking your own eudaimonia is fundamentally seeking Jesus and it's fundamentally seeking to live in love with other people. And those are not optional extras for life. Those are, you know, we have our marching orders, and part of our marching orders is to stay alive, part of our marching orders is to treat ourselves, you know, with a certain kind of respect. Um, part of our marching orders is even to use the talents that God's given us. They, obviously, the parable of the talents, you know, the way that we use the word talent is is adopted from that. And part of our marching orders is to not abandon the community that God's put us in. Um, and that does seem to me to be something that kind of is this um, almost reappropriation of those pre-Christian ideas of, of virtue back into something that's more holistic and more truly Christian. Um, to be honest, it's like I, I, I'm i deeply obsessed with this idea of um, the bastardized version of natural law that people on Twitter talk about called non-G-N-O-N. Um, it's essentially natural law as in the survival of the fittest or natural law as in you know, get swole and be healthy. And there... are Bronze Age... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah our, our sort of, yeah, Twitter, uh, Frog Abbey people who are very into this. And it's extremely wrong. This is not natural laws. It's understood in Christian um, teaching. But there's also something that's not totally misguided about it because it does have the sense of um, human excellence and strength as goods. And... I think it's only in the context of you know, the religion of Jesus that those things can be recognized as goods without becoming poisoned and without it starting to be implied that people who haven't achieved those things um, you know, ought to be eliminated from the body politic. And I think what it comes down to is the fact that Christianity is a religion of hope. Um, you end your essay with the idea of our lives being full of promise. And before, you know, the the New Jerusalem. Before we see God face to face in heaven, we are only living on promises. Like we are, none of us are as healthy as well as we could be, either physically or spiritually or morally.
0: And in, even if we were, uh, we all know how temporary that is.
1: Yeah, and all of the the goods that we have, even are, you know, this is sort of St. Paul. This is St. Augustine. All the goods that we have. Even all the goods that we've been able to, um, you know, bring out of ourselves through application or through training or whatever, the, you know, the, the very sort of self-discipline that allows us to do that is also a gift. There's nothing that we have that's not a gift, and we all exist as terminal cases. We're all going to die, um, but receiving each day of life as a gift, you know, with whatever quality of life we you know is given to us in that day is something that is it's this sort of unity of duty and joy like we have to do it it's our duty but it's only because it's a duty that we can I think fully enjoy our lives as well now we're at the part of this podcast where we get to welcome a guest a plow fellow traveler Um, Well, welcome Victoria. Victoria Reynolds Farmer has a doctorate in English and gender studies from Florida State University. She currently works for a market research firm and she helps to run the Christian Feminist Podcast, which is um, one branch of the ever expanding world dominating Christian humanist podcasting network, um, which is I think where I know you from, and also from Twitter.
2: Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, I am a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and and we are slowly taking over the world. It's great. So
1: we had you'd, you've written for us before, um, and you I think we had reached out to you to write this piece pretty early on. This was one of the first pieces that we talked about actually for this issue. Um, do you want to just sort of describe the piece and the the whole process that you went through in writing it?
2: Sure. Um, First, I would just like to say thank you so much for asking me to contribute to this special issue. I feel like um, a lot of disability stories don't get to be told by disabled people themselves. Um, There's a lot of framing around uh, parents of children with disabilities and communal relationships, both of which are, are valuable, important things. And I think we'll probably talk more about sort of interrelatedness and and community later. But uh, because I think disabled people don't get a lot of opportunities to tell our own stories in our own voices, I was really honored uh, that you guys reached out to me for this issue. So thanks for that. Uh, But the the piece is, it's a lot of things, I guess. Uh, It is my attempt to reconcile my uh, conversion to Catholicism and my desire to live out a more embodied theology with uh, some struggles I've had surrounding my inability to have children as a disabled woman, um, which is a a really complex situation. And uh, even though I really wanted to write this piece, I didn't wanna write this piece at all. I was really terrified to put something so scary and and sorrowful and and grief-filled out into the public. Uh, But uh, because your team and your editors were so supportive of my previous piece, uh, which was also very personal and scary, I I felt like this was the right place for me to do that. Uh, So I wrote about those embodied theology experiences and decided to frame the piece around the phrases of the Hail Mary, uh, because that prayer and the way I use it to connect to the people around me has been a really important part of my journey into Catholicism. You know, you talked a little
1: bit about the first time that you prayed to Mary or that you asked for Mary's intercession. Do you want to tell
2: that story? I love this story. Uh, I am apparently the only person who remembers that this happened. Uh, I asked my family about it and they do remember the musical. Uh, I, was, I was the Christmas star in my Baptist church's uh, nativity play when I was six and I had my first ever uh, solo where it wasn't, I wasn't just part of the choir. I was actually singing a few phrases by myself and uh, because it was the first time I'd ever done that, I was nervous. And, uh, my mom told me not to be nervous because, uh, if you try your best and you trust God's plan, things work out. Okay. And when she said that to me, my brain flashed to, uh, the Sunday school lessons that we just had about Mary. And so well, while I don't think I thought of myself as praying to her at the time, uh, because I, I didn't know as a very Baptist small child uh, that that was a thing that people could do. Um, certainly now looking back, I, I do think what I was doing was praying to Mary and I asked her to help me uh, be brave and tell people about Jesus and uh, everything worked out okay. And I didn't forget any of my lines.
0: Well, the way that piece came together is just so beautiful and you know, uh, w- what was amazing to me is how uh, you tell the story. It gradually unfolds with each new phrase in the Hail Mary prayer um, with in a way that um, I, I hope many readers will uh, right now click through to. Uh, we'll put the link in the notes for this um, episode. Um, it's so important, as you were saying at the beginning, the the voices of those who l- live with disability are often not heard, and for me, um, ha- getting a chance to read this piece when it first came in, um, there were so many things I learned and understood for the first time uh, about the story you told. Um, coming to, to to the end, uh, I I would be I would love to hear um, just what what are some of the things that you kind of hope that people coming new to to disability who maybe haven't thought about it a lot before, um, what are some of the things that you hope they would walk away from this piece with?
2: I would hope that people who aren't familiar with the way uh, disabled people experience the world would broaden the voices that they listen to. Uh, Do you follow disabled activists on social media? Do you seek out pop culture that uh, contains disability representation? Uh, If you count invisible and uh, mental disabilities and physical disabilities, uh, 20% of the US population is disabled in one way or another. That's a huge chunk of people and I don't think that representation happens um, culturally or pop culturally. Uh, so seek out those voices. And uh, secondly, and I think sort of related to that point, um, when they tell you how they experience the world, believe them. Part of your
1: piece was sort of describing your own experience with disability, and you know, as a both as a child and as a young woman. Can you just let our readers know what that is? Like, where are you speaking? What is the place that you're speaking from? I have
2: spastic diplegic cerebral palsy, uh, which is a lot of large words uh, that mean uh, there is damage to the part of my brain that controls muscle strength and tightness. And uh, essentially in layman's terms, the muscles that control my legs are Programmed backwards. They are tighter than they're supposed to be, and the synapses um, don't exactly work right. What that means practically is that I walk with an awkward gait uh, and my hips over rotate. Uh, So, that's cerebral palsy is a a really common kind of catch all diagnosis. And um, some people have muscles that are too tight, and some people that have the other kind that I don't have have muscles that are too loose. Um, you may have also seen um, people like that, but it is a very common diagnosis. And my case is is milder um, than, than a lot of people's, but that's my sort of specific um, experience. And I, I should say, of course, disability is not a monolith. Cerebral palsy is not a monolith. Um, these are, are my experiences. So you also describe
1: in your piece the way that kind of... Um... Encountering, especially the some of the stories of the some of the women in the Bible, and in particular um, Mary's visitation to Elizabeth, um, was something that helped you towards a more embodied understanding of your of your faith and essentially a greater peace at being inside your own skin. Um, I'm really interested to to know how Catholicism, in particular, kind of has interacted with with that, because obviously sort of one of the things that people say about it is that it is a more, um, it's a more physical kind of Christianity. It's an embodied faith. Um,
2: so I was supposed to be, uh, confirmed Easter 2020, but, uh, but, but, uh, everyone, everyone knows what happened. Um, and so my, my confirmation was, was delayed until the fall. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that. So growing up Southern Baptist, um, and this is not a criticism of my particular church or community, who really loved me very, very well, and and tried to create an environment in which I could do everything that all the other kids could do, and and was very supported and, and listened to and cared for. But generally, in my experience of low church Protestantism, There can be a drift toward a a kind of Gnosticism in in which the soul is so elevated that the body is considered um, lesser or unimportant in a way that for me as a disabled person felt like my physical self and my spiritual self could not coexist but because I am someone for whom it's really difficult to hide the physical effort with which I move through the world, uh, I I had a problem with that separation. Uh, I am never not aware of my physical body. And so um, the idea that I would step inside my church that was supposed to be the safest, most accepting place and have to not recognize or not think about my physicality in that space uh, or think about it as as purposefully subordinate when it's such a always present part of my life uh, was was difficult for me so one of the things that drew me to catholicism is how much the sacraments are grounded in physicality and how much um, Christ as incarnational is really, uh, really emphasized. That you know taught me that there is, not only is there room for both the spiritual and the physical, but that the spiritual and the physical need to be relational and, and equally holy. And, and that was a, a really liberating thing for me.
1: Can you talk about the, um, the parts of scripture that sort of spoke to you as you were going through this? this discovery or this um,
2: recalibration? Yes. So I, I I mentioned in the piece that growing up, I was always looking for um, female representations of um, how to be a Christian in the world. And uh, I would read Bible stories over and over of women whose uh, faith would be tested Um, I really liked uh, the bleeding woman in Matthew nine because that's someone who um, her, her body is supposed to separate her from society. And she doesn't agree with that. And she touches the hem of Jesus's garment anyway. uh, And then her faith is, is rewarded. Um, But for me, I was always really drawn to um, the Annunciation, the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth, because, well, at first it was just because it seemed like this really emotionally rich relationship between two women. uh, And there aren't a lot of those that are really fleshed out in the Bible. So that's something that really spoke to me um, as a young girl and still speaks to me. as an adult. But then when I started thinking about that passage more, I realized it's not just that they're sharing emotional experiences, though they are, and it's great that that's validated in that passage. They're also sharing a very particular embodied experience because they're both dealing with this miraculous pregnancy, which must be such a terrifying isolating thing, even though it's a miraculous, wonderful thing. Um, it's, It's both and. And the idea that these two women who are experiencing the same physical thing at once are finding solace and friendship and recognition and compassion in one another is just still incredibly powerful to me. The idea that God gives us the gift of people who experience the physical world, the way that we do, and that uh, that being known is a is a particularly powerful and and grace filled thing. One of the
1: powerful things about the um, visitation for me has to do with the fact that this is there are four people in this room, you know there there are four people in that encounter. There's you know Mary and Elizabeth, and then there's. John, who leaps in Elizabeth's womb because he's so excited, and you you can sort of, like, obviously she feels it, you know, he, he's kicking. And then there's Jesus, who, you know, she's already his mother. Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And Mary is already his mother, even though he's, you know, an embryo at this point. And the idea that, like, the the fetus John is worshipping the embryonic Christ is, like, yeah. it... it turns your brain inside out and it makes it 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 does not leave much room for ambiguity about sort of the personhood of the unborn at least you know for christians i would think um i wonder like is you know obviously there there are so many parts of um the disability movement and the pro-life movement that kind of intersect with each other in interesting and complicated ways. Um, in general, dis- the disability movement tends to be sort of seen as on the left for some reason, and the pro-life movement tends to be seen as on the right. I find this bizarre. Um, do you want to discuss like how
2: that's played out in your life or how any reflections that you have on that? Um, I, I am a pro-life feminist. Um, that means a lot of people think I don't exist. Um, as you say that's a that's a very kind of complex socio-political position to hold um i I do think that disability is very much a pro-life uh issue and peter you touch on this in your really wonderful editorial uh the idea that um disability and eugenics have always historically been linked. Um, you mentioned the quote-unquote eradication of uh, Down syndrome in Iceland, which when, when that uh, happened, literally everyone I've ever known sent me newspaper articles and said, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I said, I have to take a break from the internet right now because I can't. Like, I just, I can't. It's, It's very... Terrifying to know that there is a segment of the world that thinks uh, your life has so little value that it would be better for the world if you and people like you did not exist. That it, that you take too much effort from from other people. Like that's a, it's just such a ghoulish uh, mode of thought, and it's it's really insidious too. Like it it kind of creeps into places and in culture that if you're not looking for it, you don't expect. Um, there is, for example, an entire subgenre of like romance literature that is about um, the, the way to show that you most love uh, a disabled person is to let them kill themselves. Uh, if you're familiar with the Me Before You trilogy, uh, that's essentially the plot of those books. Uh, they're also made into, into rom coms that people actually saw. Um, ghoulish ghoulish is the the only word i've got for it
1: i'm i'm gonna have to sit with that one for a while <laughs> um that's hideous i wonder whether you could talk a little bit about um what it seems to me is probably the most difficult one of the most difficult parts of writing this piece um which is um sort of the decision that you came to in the course of you know as as you were becoming Catholic. Um, about having children and how I, I just like, I'm also curious about, um, how sort of how the priest that you talked about this with, um, thought about it and, and how this works with general Catholic teaching. Um, because this is not something that you did kind of as a cafeteria Catholic.
2: Uh, well, my husband and I had a a very serious conversation about, um, when we were deciding to convert, we, um, very early had the, so what does this mean for birth control, uh, conversation, uh, because I, I was on, um, hormonal birth control early in our marriage before we converted, um, at at the advice of my doctors primarily for, um, reasons to do with very painful, uh, periods, but, after that, um, we we looked at church teachings and we had already decided if we were going to convert, we were going to convert and we were going to uh, recognize the teachings of the magisterium, and, you know, go, go all in because why do it otherwise? If you're going to make this decision, make this decision. And uh, so we, we spoke to our priest and told him the situation and he was uh, very kind and talked to us about grief, and said that it was clear that we uh, weren't entering into this situation lightly. That we had thought about it, um, that we were pained over it, and that it it seemed like uh, we should listen to medical advice because we'd weighed the options. Um, and and he says the the church lets. Um, priests and parishes give dispensation for that, um, and and even though I'm glad that he said that to us, and even though I do feel that that's the right decision um, for me and my marriage, as I said in the piece, um, I, I'm still grieving over it. Like that, that doesn't mean I'm sort of done with this decision or or done with the experience. And, and I appreciate the fact that um, the communities I'm in, specifically the Christian communities I'm in, have given me space to express uh, the maternal energy that I have, that I have to think is, is divinely originated, um, ha- have given me an outlet for that energy.
1: I'm just really moved by your ability to gradually describe this these, this set of personal experiences and weave scripture in. Um, again, I just would urge everyone who's listening or watching to read this piece. Um, Victoria is a, a writer. This is a crafted piece. And it's a very well-crafted piece. Um,
0: it's in many ways the heart of this issue of yeah. Plough. And so thanks so much. It's been so great to to talk with you, Victoria. I would also urge folks, um, if you get on our website, you can also read uh, Victoria's earlier piece for us, which is um, revelatory in a different way. It's called The Effort in the Image on Seeing Cezanne's as the Large Bathers from a Rented Wheelchair. And uh, it's another piece that I could promise you... Um, most of you have not read, uh, an essay like this before. So thanks so much for this conversation and for also for wanting to, to share, um, you know, these very real, um, quite painful, you know, topics that go to the heart of, of what it means to, to be a human being in many ways. So, uh, thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really
1: enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasting consumption needs. And rate us. Give us five stars on iTunes. That helps us with visibility. Um, we'll be back next week to talk with Amy Murphy of Rehumanize International and repeat Plowcast Defender, Ross Douthat. <laughs>